How are we? Good, good, good. Josh is up here with them pearly whites on. You saw those shoes? Look like the gates of heaven in this joint, all right? And it is good to be here with you all this morning. Uh, my name is Tori. I'm one of the pastors here at the well. Uh, man, last week was so great. We should have barbecue every week after church. Amen. <laughs> amen. All right. I'm not going to lie either. I'd be saying the most random things and y'all's amens be on point. Wouldn't a brother be preaching though? All right. So here we go. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and grab them. Uh, we are starting a new series today. I'm excited about it. Uh, we're going to be in Psalm 133, so you can go ahead and flip there. Uh, if you do not have Bibles, feel free to actually slip up your hand, uh, and some ushers are coming forward now, and they would uh, love to give you a Bible. We would love for you to be able to see the Word, to be able to, to walk in the midst of the Word, and um, I want you all to know, if you do not own a Bible, man, that's our gift to you. Please take that uh, and be able to bring that home with you that you may have the Word of God in your house, all right? You can also follow along on your smartphone. If you have the Version app underneath the events section, type in the well Austin. You can follow along that way. You can also take that link that's right there on the screen and put that in your browser. You can follow along that way as well. I say this every week because I mean this. We want your eyes on the word, okay? Uh, we really do think that the word of God speaks to us and that so often when somebody's communicating the word, it's not the person that uh, we want you to be hearing from, but actually be able to receive the truth of the scriptures. And so to be able to have your eyes on it, to see what God is doing in the midst of it is an important thing. In other words, we don't want you just to follow the dude up here that's talking, right? We want you to follow the word of God because we think the word of God has life and is powerful. And we want you to be Bereans. Acts 17, 11 says that the Bereans took what Paul was saying and tested it against scripture to make sure what he was saying was true. And because of that, they were more noble, even more than were added to their number. And so we want to be a people that are really feasting our eyes on the word, not just listening to what other people are saying, but seeing the truth of the text for ourselves. Amen? And so that's what we want to be about. So, man, that's why we give you all these opportunities to, to dive in the word different ways in which to do that. All right? So, as I said, we're starting a new series today called Fully Alive. And the idea of the series is that uh, what does it look like for us to have an abundant life, a rich life that Christ has offered to us? What does it mean to be fully alive in Christ? Last week was Easter, obviously, and last week we hit on how to be reconciled in our relationship with God. And so the resurrection of Jesus, it actually was proof that if we believe in God, then we can have harmony with him. We can have reconciliation with him, this uh, unity that our souls actually were created for and that they long for, that if we understand who Jesus is, man, we can have that through the gospel. However, Christianity is not just a religion or uh, this idea of uh, something that really captures you for eternity and that is it. But in reality, Christianity is actually a very practical understanding of what it means to follow Christ even on our day-to-day's walks with him. And so it's not just eternal security that, man, we get to go be with Jesus when we die, but it's actually practical. It's living right now that if Jesus is who he says that he is, then following him actually has implications for our life. And it actually will begin to shape our lives in such a way to where we will become more of who God has created us to be, more of who he has intended for us to be. So that's the topic uh, that we're covering in the next couple of weeks is, man, how do we become fully alive? How do we take this truth of the gospel and actually create some practical roadways that we would live out the gospel in our lives? And so every week we'll be looking at something a little bit different. And if I'm honest with you, it would really take the whole Bible for us to uh, be able to understand everything that's in here to have a full life that Christ has intended for us. And so really what we want to do is take some of the main themes that we see throughout the scriptures and then apply them into our lives. 
life and what are the things that make us come more and more alive in Jesus and in who he is. And one of the things that I think that is the biggest that we'll be talking about today is this idea of being relationally rich. Okay, that's the, what we're covering today is this uh, rich relationship, not just with God, but with each other that God has intended. God has orchestrated and really designed for us to be just filthy rich, right? Like filthy rich, okay? The problem is, is that we think that that always comes in prosperity in terms of wealth or finances. And scriptures actually do not promise that of the believer. We see most of the New Testament believers actually die in poverty, but yet they were not poor by any means because the scriptures lay out that there is something far greater than gold before us, and that is actually the relationships that we can have with one another. The gospel says that, man, not only are we reconciled with God, but if the truth of the gospel, if the reality of Jesus is accurate, then we can be reconciled with one another. And if we are actually reconciled with one another, man, this will make your life rich. It will flourish it. It will blossom it in ways that you were intended to experience. The Bible makes clear early on in Genesis 1 that we were created in the image of God. The Latin word there is the imago Dei. You might have heard that before. It's this idea that, man, we were created like God in his image and in his likeness, Genesis 1.26 says. And God in his very nature is a relational God, right? You think about God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit, we understand that they actually dwell together in this rich harmony that from eternity past, they had this intimacy with one another. And as God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit interacted in that relationship, he, they then made us in their likeness. And so if God is a relational God, then we, by our very design and intrinsic in our very DNA, are designed to have relationships with each other. We, like God, are designed to be relational. And really, if we talk about becoming fully alive, what we really mean by that is you are being made more like Christ. And the more like Christ you are made, the more you will experience the life that God has designed you for. And if Christ is a relational God in and of himself, then we are to be relational people. And the more rich and deep our relationships are, then the more like our creator we become and the more alive we become. And this is what God has actually intended us. This is what uh, he has designed for us to be. And so last week we looked at how the cross and the resurrection reconciles us to God. But this week we want to look at how the cross and the resurrection of Jesus, it actually reconciles us to one another. God has orchestrated a way for us to be unified in these beautiful ways. Because at the fall in Genesis chapter 3, we actually see a fracture in that relationship. Right? It's not just us and God that's divided at Genesis 3 as we rebelled against him, but it's also us from one another. Man and woman are immediately blaming each other, right? And they're saying, oh, it's, it's this person's fault they sin, it's this person's fault. And then you go to Genesis 4, and the first two people that are born, Cain and Abel, Cain ends up killing Abel, and so humanity's off to this awesome start right? There's murder immediately, and we see this division is what Scripture is laying out. There's all this division throughout the Bible. However, in Christ, the redemptive work of Jesus is he makes us right with himself. He also begins to redeem what was fractured there, too, in our relationship with one another. He can begin to restore it and to unify it in these beautiful ways. And so that's what we're talking about today. And really, it does, does not just appear in the New Testament where we see this theme of us being relationally rich, but it actually appears in the Old Testament as well. In fact, they foreshadow and they long for this redemptive work in these beautiful and these profound ways. And so that's why we're in the Psalms today. And so Psalm 133 is what we're going to be covering. And it's a really short psalm. And so we're going to read all of it. It says this. 
Behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. It was like the precious oil on the head, running down on the beard, on the beard of Aaron, running down on the collar of his robes. It is like the dew of Hermon, which falls on the mountains of Zion, for there the Lord has commanded the blessing, life forevermore. And you can leave this text up. We're going to be chopping it up a whole bunch today. But uh, immediately we see David says, hey, behold. That's how he starts this psalm off with, right? Like, like behold. And so David immediately makes a, wants us to stop and to think about or dwell on or imagine or recall to behold this idea of what it means for brothers to dwell together in unity. Notice he says that it is good and pleasant, right? It's not just good. It's not just pleasant, but it's good and pleasant. And that when brothers are in unity, this is a sight to behold. It is something that is kind of profound. It's something that we should begin to really wrestle with and try to grab onto because this is a profound truth. That word good there, good and pleasant, is the exact same word used in Genesis chapter 1 when God creates all of creation. And every day at the end of the day, he calls it good Right? And so he says that brothers dwelling together in unity has this same goodness, this same purity, this same uh, beauty that the very creation itself held. See, what God creates, he calls it good. And so he says that brothers dwelling together in unity is similarly good. And so therefore, we recognize right away that this sort of truth, true unity, true brotherly fellowship can only come by the work of God. For only God can create what is good, but it is good and pleasant when brothers dwell together in unity. And David appears to think that, man, this is a possible thing, right? Secondly, you see the word dwell there, okay? Has this idea of abiding in or living with or being intimately connected. And so it's not good and pleasant, just acquaintances, right? It's not in and out of relationship or in and out of brotherhood, but there's a dwelling, there's a residing in, there's this intimacy that's involved there. And so it's not just a good thing that we say, oh, hey, how are you, brother? Right, But it's actually more than that, that there's an intimacy that God desires. There's a, a dwelling in here. And so this is a, a beautiful picture that when brothers or sisters are connected together, there's something intimate. There's something good about it. Third, that word unity there at the end of the verse, we're actually going to keep coming back to that all day today because that is the pendulum by which this psalm kind of swings. And it says, hey, that is a good thing. It's a unifying thing. But the Hebrew word there is actually the exact same word that is used in Genesis 2 when it says that a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. That word one is the same word here for unity. And so it's not just this uh, acquaintance once again, but there's this intimacy, this connection, the same connection that was had in Genesis 2 when uh, Adam and Eve became one. Man, this is true. This is what David is saying it should be like with the brothers. There should be this unbelievable intimacy that is had. And so there's this uh, deep connection that's here immediately, right? Not just acquaintances, not people that you like hooping with, right? Not people that you like going to concerts with or reading Ninja Turtle comics with or whatever y'all do, right? I don't know what, that's, that's not even, is that a thing? I don't know, maybe it is. But, right, there's not just this acquaintance, right? Like there's something deep, there's something personal, there's something intimate amongst here. And so this is a sight to ponder. In fact, David would go on to say that this sort of unity here is actually similar to Aaron and to the dew of Hermon. And he begins to create these wildly vivid analogies for us. And really for us to be able to even understand why this unity 
is such an important thing and why it's so powerful and what David is highlighting, we actually need to understand some of these analogies, okay? And so if you're familiar with the Old Testament, begin to think about what it means that Aaron was anointed with the oil of, of, of God, okay? If you're not familiar with it, there's a, a concept here in the Old Testament that's super important. Aaron was the high priest for Israel, and what happened is, is that Israel and Exodus and Leviticus, they come up out of Egypt and they become a people of God. And it says that in order for them to be made right with God, they had to act in faith to offer up a lamb to be sacrificed whenever there was sin. And so this sacrifice would actually reconcile them and God. And so this is why we celebrate, it's why we sing about the death of Jesus, because we believe that he was the true and better sacrifice. He was the lamb by which all these other sacrifices were pointing us to. And that by believing in this sacrifice, what happens is, is the priest would go and offer it before God, and your sins were placed onto that lamb, and that lamb's purity or its righteousness was substituted onto you. And so this was all foreshadowing the true lamb that would come, Jesus, that would actually take away sins, that if you believe in him, then your sins are placed on his shoulder and his righteousness is extended to you, but this was pictured or metaphor in the Old Testament by these sacrificial offerings. However, not just anybody can go offer a sacrifice. And so if you skipped work or you lied to your coworker or you uh, cut somebody off in traffic and you felt bad, you couldn't just go to the temple and offer up a turtle dove, all right? Like you had to only uh, go through the high priest and the high priest would be the one that would offer it up for you. And so when this happened, this beautiful moment, they had this ceremony and they brought Aaron before everyone and said, man, here's our high priest. And this is a powerful moment because, man, without the high priest, how could you know if your sins were forgiven? How could you know if you were accepted by God? Who could go to God on your behalf? There was nobody. And so Aaron then comes and they pour this fragrant oil on him and they literally baptize him in this oil in a way and it perfumes out and it's this celebratory moment in the house of Israel. Now, check what David is saying here. And if you follow his analogy, it almost sounds blasphemous. He says that brothers who dwell together in unity is like this. It's like salvific, right? Like, like this was the way by which men and women were saved when the high priest finally came to offer sacrifices for sin, and that brothers who dwell to, together in unity, it's kind of like that, David says, the same amount of rejoicing that you should have when you hear you could be made right with God is the same amount of rejoicing that you should have when you realize, man, we could be made right with each other. Like this almost sounds like it's going too far, right? David then goes on to explain the second analogy, the, the dew of Hermon. What would happen is there's this massive mountain. Remember where we are. We're in Israel, right? It's a dry, kind of a, a desert-like place. But there was this mountain where every morning this dew would come up on the mountain. And it would literally water the mountain. So it was this grassy mountain in the middle of this desert, right? Now, I know y'all don't really know what dew is here in Texas, okay? It's like this wet stuff on the ground in the morning, all right? But I'm from Michigan, so every morning we would walk out and there would be dew. And that's the reason why uh, the grass would be so soft. I literally remember when I first came down here and I started walking on the grass, it was like cutting my feet, right? <laughs> In Michigan, you like lay down on the grass, okay? And so there's a big, big difference. But man, this is what uh, uh, David is saying is that uh, these brothers who dwell together in unity, it's like this refreshment to the soul. It brings life. It brings even, look, life forevermore. That once again sounds like salvation, doesn't it? 
And so brothers who dwell together in unity, this is where blessing lies. This is where life forevermore lies. There is this intimacy that is to be had for the people of God, and it is a beautiful gift. It is similar to the gift of salvation itself. Do you have that? Right? This is what David begins to press into immediately, makes this massive, massive claim. And so don't miss what I'm saying, right? He says it's like it. It's not it itself. It's not salvation itself, but... Once you receive the salvation of God, then this is the, the beautiful uh, uh, thing that, that derives from that, which is that now we can have reconciliation, we can have relationship with one another. This is a thing worth praising him for, right? Genesis 2 says it's not good that man should be alone, and if you believe in Jesus, then you are not alone. Because immediately he does not just connect you with himself, but he actually places you within the church, the body of Christ, that you may begin to experience what David is foreshadowing, this unbelievable unity. And so we see immediately in the text is that God wants us to be rich relationally. He wants us to have these deep relationships. That's like dew in the morning or like oil on the head of Aaron, right? He goes on and, and continues to, to paint this deep, deep picture of what it means for us to dwell together, right? This is an important, important thing. And so brothers dwelling together in unity, loving each other, man, this actually makes us fully alive. If we want to experience the true depth of the resurrection of Jesus and the true life that Jesus has to offer, it's not enough that we are reconciled with God, but we need to begin to then be reconciled with one another and have this unity that is this deep, beautiful, intimate thing that begins to make your heart flourish and blossom like waters that appear every morning on your heart. This is one of the gifts and the benefits of the gospel. And so this is what we need to fight for. And friends, if we need to fight for it, then what we also need to realize is that this is the very thing in your soul that is being fought against by the enemy, right? Even your own flesh would fight against this, right? This sort of unity, this sort of togetherness, this sort of life, this is the very thing that the enemy would not want you to experience. In fact, in John chapter 10, verse 10, it'll be on the screen, I'll have to turn there, but Jesus makes it really, really plain. The thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy, it says, but I've come that you may have life and life abundantly, right? This, this rich life, this forever life, this overflowing life. But the thief, the thief comes to steal and to kill and destroy. And so in this idea of relationships, well, what is the thief trying to do? Well, of course, he's trying to steal these relationships from us. He's trying to kill them so that you may not have this abundant life that is offered in Jesus. He is trying to make you not fully alive. And so we have to be a people who are recognizing that and who are ready to fight for that. Amen? Amen? Right? Like this is an important thing, right? That we would understand this idea of relationship and this idea that God has for us that we would be connected to one another. And so I think that there are three kind of lies that really impact us to not have the relationships that God would design for us. There are three kind of anti-truths that are working against us that would make us not be able to have all the riches that Christ has meant for us. And I want to tackle those today. They're the three anti-truths that you see there in Psalm 133. And I think that it's important for us to recognize them, that we may fight against them, for the enemy is trying to steal, kill, and destroy your life that you you may not have the abundant life that Jesus wants for you. And so I think one of these uh, uh, lies, the first thing that we kind of mistakenly think is that this sort of unity, this sort of togetherness can only be found in romance or in marriage, right? 
Hello, single people. I ain't got no amens on that. All right? Amen. <laughs> right? Like, let's be honest, okay? In marriage, you should for sure experience this sort of romance, right? This sort of intimacy, this sort of unity. You should really experience the, the dew in the morning, right? It's like it begins to blossom you to life as God uses your spouse to begin to make you more like Christ. Like, like this is something that we should for sure experience in marriage, but it is a lie to think that marriage is the only place that we can experience that sort of intimacy. Remember, it says oneness, unity, togetherness. It's similar like Adam and Eve becoming one. So that's true with brothers and sisters who dwell together with each other. It does not just happen in marriage, but it happens in relationships as a whole. In fact, friendships, I think, is one of the most beautiful ways that you can experience this truth. You see, the, the things that make a good marriage awesome, they can be true of friendship as well. Not walking away from one another, right? Fighting for each other. You know, being there for one another, sacrificing for the other person, not thinking that you are better than them, but rather laying down your life that they may be built up. Like this is what marriage is supposed to represent and highlight. And we can experience that same truth in friendship, in brotherhood, and in sisterhood. This can all be had. And really, I would go as far to say that while marriage is a great representation of Christ in the church, it's a great representation of this intimacy that God longs to have with you. Like, we don't want to forsake that, right? Like, the God of the universe wants to be intimate with you. And Ephesians 5 says that marriage is representing that. It's, it's showcasing the intimacy that God longs to have. But I would say friendship actually better represents the kingdom. For in friendship is where you have all the others gathered together around the Lamb of God lifting up. It is what it will be like for us in the kingdom. And so while marriage is intimate, the friendship is kingdom-oriented. C.S. Lewis, who is a philosopher, uh, and you wrote Chronicles of Narnia and uh, different books that we've read, one of the most influential thinkers of the 20th century, he says this about his friends. He says, in each of my friends, there is something that only some other friend can fully bring out. By myself, I am not large enough to call the whole man into activity. I want other lights than my own to show all of his facets. Now that Charles is dead, I shall never again see Ronald's reaction to a specific Charlene joke. Far from having more of Ronald, having him to myself now that Charles is away, I actually have less of Ronald. Hence, true friendship is the least jealous of loves. Two friends delight to be joined by a third and three by a fourth if only the newcomer is qualified to become a real friend. They can, they can then say, as the blessed souls say in Dante, here comes one who will augment our loves. For in this love to divide is not to take away. We possess each friend not less but more as the number of those with whom we share him increases. In this, friendship exhibits a glorious nearness by resemblance to heaven itself, where the very multitude of the blessed, which no man can number, increases the fruition with which, uh, with, uh, which each has of God. For every soul seeing him in her own way doubtless communicates that unique vision to all the rest. That says an old author is why the seraphim in Isaiah's vision are crying, holy, holy, holy to one another. And so in this beautiful way, friendship, unlike marriage, what C.S. Lewis is saying, it actually represents the kingdom. 
You see that there even in the Psalms, right? Psalm 133 says when brothers, plural, dwell together in unity. Not this isolated incident, not his best friend Jonathan or something, but it's when brothers dwell together, right? The picture of the kingdom is not an isolated picture, but rather the kingdom is the multitude of saints gathered around the throne. And so friendship in a lot of ways actually showcases for us heaven in a way that marriage cannot. And so it's a lie for us to think that this sort of unity, this togetherness, this intimacy can only be had in friendship. In fact, I think oftentimes we are missing the joy that God has for us because we are so focused on this desiring of a marriage that we miss the very blessing of friends around us. In fact, I will go as far to say is that some of you all have been praying for things and God is trying to answer them through your friends, but you think it only comes through your marriage or your desire for marriage, or your future husband or wife, or whatever it may be. And and that's just a lie, friends. Like right now, you can have this intimacy that God has designed for you, right? Now, obviously, I'm pro-marriage, okay? I'm not like anti-marriage, right? Like I want you to get married. In fact, I want more people to get married. In fact, some of y'all men are tripping up in this joint, all right? There's a lot of single ladies in here. Get on the game, all right? And I see y'all too, right? Every uh, a greeting moment where we turn and say hi, you walk all the way to the other side to give that woman a holy hug. I watched you, dog. All right? I ain't going to call no names, but, but that's a good thing, all right? You have permission, okay, from your lead pastor to, to find relationship, right? That is a good thing. Romance is awesome. It is a beautiful thing. In that book that I just quoted, it's called The Four Loves. And one of those loves is a romantic love. But, man, friendship actually has all this value too. Don't skip out on it. Don't think that blessing is only had in marriage or in romance. It's through brotherhood and sisterhood. I mean, some of my deepest moments with the Lord has come not through my wife, but actually through my friends, right? And I think she would say the exact same thing about me, is that when my brothers and my sisters, when we're dwelling together, man, there's this intimacy of Christ that's displayed there, and we need to experience that with one another. It's this sweet oil and fragrance, this oil that dripped off of Aaron, this dew in the morning. Man, this is what it means to have brothers in unity with one another. Now, you may say, well, that's easy for you to say. You have friends and you're married, right? Well, go ask Cooley what she thinks about this, Okay. She'll make you want to be single, right? In fact, if you're married and struggling in your marriage, don't ask Cooley about how awesome singleness is, right? Like, she will highlight it because it's true. She's experienced it. She's tasted it. But you have to be willing to recognize it doesn't just come from romance. Secondly, the second lie that I think that we believe that uh, unity is best highlighted in people that are like us. And so we say, hey, people have to be like me if I'm going to find unity. And that is just such a dang lie, friends. Notice that the text here in Psalm 133, it says, when they are unified, not when they're identical. You know what I mean? Right? It's not when we are exactly alike that we see this unity. In fact, the New Testament tells us over and over and over again that we should fight for unity. But it also says that within that unity, we should celebrate and fight for diversity. And so really, it's not the people that are just like you that make you see the fullness of God. In irony, it's actually the people that are nothing like you that make you see the fullness of God. In fact, in the Hebrew uh, word, that, that word pleasant there in Psalm 133, how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell together in unity, that Hebrew word is hayim. And what that word uh, carries with it all throughout the scriptures is this idea of a symphony or an orchestra. In fact, this is one of the only times it's used in the whole Bible where it's not talking about music. 
And so think about it. Think about what, what David is kind of allegorizing here. If you had 10 or 20 of the exact same instruments, it would not be that beautiful sounding, right? Now, it may be loud. It may be, like, awesome. It may strike some sort of different emotion. But, like, beauty and unity, like, that's not the emotion that you would get from this. But what creates this beautiful, this, this harmony, this symphony, it's actually when you have 5, 10, 20, 100 different instruments that are all playing something totally different, but they're actually playing in a unified way, pressing us together, like that's when the symphony comes alive, right? And David says, this is what it's like for us who dwell together. God wants the symphony of the heart, but it does not come when everybody's a trumpet. It comes when we have differences, And when there's all this diversity amongst ourselves, this is what God would have for us. That God would have this relational idea of this diversity and yet this unity within this diversity. And I believe that in the church of God, this is where it can be found most plainly. A bunch of people that ain't like me, that look nothing like me, all playing a different part, but we're kind of focusing on the same thing, the glories of Christ. And as we focus on that together, they begin to augment me, as, as Lewis said there in that quote. They begin to make me come alive in these beautiful ways. And so this is why we should fight for diversity. It's part of the reason why I love our church, right? It's not just that we are a diverse church racially, especially for Austin, right? But it's that we're a diverse church in terms of gender, in terms of uh, uh, socioeconomic status, in terms of generationally. And we should not just uh, uh, celebrate for this, but literally fight for it more and more and more. Because as the different pieces are coming together, then they begin to showcase for us different realities about God and who he is. And they make us come more alive. And so it is a lie for you to think that, well, nobody's like me. Nobody likes to listen to this sort of music. And therefore, I can't have these deep relationships. Music isn't what creates depth. Jesus is. And they are like you because you, if you are a believer, are a sinner saved by grace. That's the most beautiful thing that we all have in common. And so we can then center around this, right, and find this intimacy that God has designed us for. I think about some of my uh, uh, best friends, even here in the church, right? Some of y'all know Jake Ridley. He was uh, the elder that just rolled off recently. And me and Jake, we're like not really much alike, right? Like, I'm tall, he's short, I'm caramel, he's vanilla, right? I'm from the hood, he's from the burbs, okay? One of us is a lot better looking than the other one. I'll let you decide that for yourself, all right? And yet, he's one of my best friends, right? Like, like we don't really get along. Like, he's a finance guy, and I'm like, I don't really understand any of that world, right? And yet, man, this man loves Jesus, and I desire to love Jesus. And Jake, more than almost anybody else in my life, has pressed me to know Jesus more and more and more. And he's sacrificed, and he's fought for me, and he's shown me the realities of Christ. And so we then begin to have this deep relationship, though we're nothing alike. This is what God would have for you as well. I think about my wife and some of her best friends, like Huli, who's on staff, who a lot of y'all know. Like, there are not a lot of similarities between them, right? Like, like they're both women, and that's it, right? Like, besides that, they have no other similarities, and yet they are best friends. Why? Because, man, Jesus has united them together, and they try to press each other to know and love Jesus more. And friends, this is what it means. So it is a lie for you to think that you cannot have this richness if there are not people like you. In fact, in some ways, it is beautiful that there are not a lot of people like you, for we all are showcasing different aspects of God. And as we see God and who he is, we get a bigger picture as we are different, not as we are the same. 
And so this is the symphony that God highlights. And this is what God would have for you. And so we need to fight for this then and not believe that lie or not have these rich relationships because we think, well, nobody's like me, right? Man, that's just a lie. People aren't like you, and this is a beautiful thing. And so this needs to be our centering force. Bonhoeffer, who was a German theologian, he actually tried to kill Hitler. That's pretty cool. He, uh, he wrote this in Life Together. He says, he who loves his dream of community more than the Christian community itself becomes a destroyer of the latter, even though his personal intentions may be ever so honest and earnest and sacrificial. In other words, what he's saying is, you can't just like the idea of community, but then not like the community that God's actually placed around you. Amen? (laughs) Right? Like, a lot of us, we like this idea of community, but then God provides for us a community, and then we're like, I don't really like that idea of community, which then you become a destroyer of the very community that you are kind of creating in your head. Why? Because you begin to create this picture of what you think community should look like, and really what you're doing is probably creating this picture of a lot of people that are a lot like you. But then you begin to destroy the very community that God has put you in because you begin to to create this picture that is unattainable because it's not even the most beautiful picture because your idea of community is not better than God's idea of community. Amen? Right? And I do that often. I find myself doing that. I'm not, not preaching to somebody else. Like, I do that. I begin to think, ah, nobody likes Christian rap like I do, or, or nobody likes basketball like I do. And I begin to create all these other tiny facades, like those are what bring me life, when I don't even really care that much about them. But Jesus, the very man who blossoms my heart into existence, that's what I have in common with all of my brothers and sisters. But we can destroy community not finding that within one another. Fight for people to be close to you who are not like you, for they will show you God in beautiful ways that you couldn't even imagine, friends. This is a lie that we have to kill. Finally, the last enemy, the last lie that we believe that hurts community is that we think that uh, finding unity within community, that this common unity, this togetherness that we desire us being made fully alive, we think that it will come easy. Now, we would not say that out loud, Okay, but we definitely show that by our actions. And friends, this is a dang lie. It is such a lie. Community is not easy. It does not come easy. In fact, if this is one of the truths of the gospel, that we are reconciled not just with God but with each other, and if we do have a great enemy that is against us, then as we said, he will do what it takes to try to destroy community because he does not want you to experience abundant life. And so this is not an easy thing but rather a hard thing. And what happens is, is we tend to uh, treat our relationships a lot like consumer goods, like fast food almost. And we begin to consume and consume. And then if we don't really like the way it tastes, we just don't shop at that restaurant anymore or at that fast food place anymore. And that's how we tend to treat our relationships. We consume and then if we don't really like it, we're like, uh, not worth it, right? When in reality, the scriptures lay out that relationships are a lot more like gardening It takes a lot of hard work and and toil and labor and time and effort. You have to continually pull the weeds and and water the garden and and get down your hands and knees in the dirt. And this is a a hard thing, right? You can't just buy the tomato. you got to grow the tomato. But we all know, if you've ever grown anything before in your life, that fruit or vegetables that you have toiled for and labored over always taste better and sweeter than ones that you just buy and consume. And the same is true with us in relationships. 
If you fight for and strive for and work for and you pull the weeds and do the effort that it takes, I mean, it's going to be sweet. It's going to be better than our just consumption, which is what our culture has taught us to do, even in this idea of relationship. But it takes effort. But the more effort, the more beautiful it can actually become. But we tend to treat our relationships the way I treat my backyard. I do no work to it. And then I get mad when the fence has fallen over and the weed has turned into a tree. Right? And all of a sudden, I got to do all this work to get this one weed out because I don't want to do any work at the start. Right? And we tend to do that in our relationships as well. In fact, Solomon, in Song of Solomon, chapter 2, verse 15, you can flip there real quick. But he writes this idea. And this is actually a... a, a a, a, a poem written about a romantic relationship, but the same idea carries in relationships in general, right? In verse 15, he just says, catch the foxes for us, the little foxes that spoil the vineyards, for our vineyards are in blossom. Solomon's like, no, not the wine, okay? And so he says, hey, catch these foxes, right? Like, catch them, do what it takes, okay? So what does that mean? It means build up the walls, Begin to shield it off so that the foxes can't come in because these foxes are these little sneaky beasts, right, that take your fruit without you really even being able to see them. And before you know it, they begin to eat out all of the hard work that you put in. And so you build a wall, and then it finds a way to dig under the wall. And then you fill that in, it goes somewhere else. And the foxes are always trying to destroy. And Solomon says, we have to do what it takes, catch the foxes, build the wall, so that it cannot destroy our relationship. And friends, you have to do what it takes catch the foxes, build the wall that you may have relationship with one another for the fox, the enemy himself is trying to destroy your relational harmony so that you do not experience the fullness of who God is, that you do not come fully alive. He is doing what it takes and you have to do what it takes to fight for it, but it's hard, right? This comes through confession and repentance. This comes through offering forgiveness. This comes through sacrifice for one another, for serving one another, forgiving with one another. We have to fight ferociously, friends, if we are going to actually come alive the way that God has called us to. God has given us this sweet, sweet gift of community for those who have placed their faith in Christ. And we ought not spurn this by our laziness and our inability to jump into this, right? It's one of the privileges of the gospel. C.S. Lewis, once again, in the same, uh, the same uh, the book, The Four Loves, says this. In friendship, we think that we have chosen our peers. In reality, a few years difference in the dates of our birth, a few more miles between certain houses, the choice of one university instead of another, the accident of a topic being raised or not raised at a first meeting, any of these chances might have kept us apart. But for a Christian, there are, strictly speaking, no chances A secret master of ceremonies has been at work. Christ who said to the disciples, ye have not chosen me, but I have chosen you, can truly say to every group of Christian friends, ye have not chosen one another, but I have chosen you for one another. The friendship is not a reward of our discriminating in good taste and finding one another out. It is the instrument by which God reveals to each of us the beauties of others, the church, relationships, This is the gift of God. And the temptation will always be for us to be like Adam, who in the garden had sin and then tried to hide from all relationships, him and God, him and his wife, him and others. And God's desire will always be to call us up out of hiding and to try to restore what the enemy tried to steal from us there. So you have to fight for community. You would be known by others. And oftentimes we let so many things get in the way of our friendships, 
right? We let a career get in the way of these intimate friendships, as if making a couple extra thousand dollars because you stay a little bit longer at work is worth the, the cost of relationships before you. Or, man, God forbid we let kids get in the way of our friendships, right? Like, I know I'm a father with three kids under four. Like, it's hard, right? And so if you want to be my friend, you got to give me 15 dates to hang out, and I can only hang out on one of those, and you got to come to my house while I'm potty training my kid and not step on pee, right? Like, that's what it means to have a relationship, right? But I have to fight for it. You have to fight for it. We need to long for this with one another. These things cannot get in the way of our intimacy, for God has orchestrated and designed in your very DNA to be connected with one another, We let sin get in the way of each other. We let time and busyness rob our friendships. We let uh, this bitterness that springs up divide us friends. We have to fight. It is not easy. It's not easy. Don't hear me saying this is an easy thing. It is a beautiful thing, but it is a hard thing. But are you willing to fight for it? Are you willing to strive to, to do what it takes? And I pray that you would find that, that you would recognize that as you garden that friendship and work at it, that it becomes this beautiful, life-giving thing. I pray that you would be known deeply by people around you and that others would know you well too. Not know what you do, not know what your hobbies are. They would know you, right? And that you would know them. For to be fully known is to be fully loved. But in order to be fully known, you have to open yourself up and you have to fight and you have to strive for it. Yes, people are going to hurt you, straight up, right? It's not easy. People are going to sin against you. Man, we are sinners, right? We're going to hurt one another. We're going to be selfish with one another. That's why we got to fight for it. And when we see that sin, the fox coming, man, we got to kill that, right? And do what it takes to prevent it, that we would have one another. For in this, these friendships, they are making you more like Jesus. And as you become more like your creator, you become more alive, And friends, isn't Jesus our great and beautiful example of this? You see, Jesus came down to earth and made friends with people who were nothing like him. Like the disciples, like he's God, right? (laughs) And Jesus in John chapter 15, verse 15, would go as far to say that he now calls them friends. God, the God of the universe, has now chosen to become friends with mankind. And he chose a bunch of people that were not like him. In fact, friends, don't miss this. He chose people who were just about to betray him. Judas, who's going to sell him out. And Peter, who's going to deny him. And the disciples who are going to run away from him and deny they ever even knew him. Jesus says, you are my friends. And when Jesus resurrected, he didn't go back and be like, yeah, I saw you deny me, bro. What's up now? right? He immediately went to Peter and tried to reconcile that relationship. Why? Because God is willing to fight for our friendship. And if he's willing to do that with us, then we have to be willing to do that with one another. Amen? This has to be something that we're passionate about, that we strive for. Jesus is our great example. And even more, friends, Jesus is also our atonement. He is the one who fixes over things when we err in these ways. What do I mean by that? Well, Jesus showed it most plainly. We said it at the start, that he is a relational God, right? Jesus has always existed from eternity past in intimacy with God the Father and God the Holy Spirit. And yet, as Jesus is dying on the cross, he calls out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And the face of the Father turns away from the Son. And we see this relational division between the Godhead. Why? Jesus became fractured that you may become whole. Jesus became fractured in his relationship with God so that your relationship with God may be restored, but not just your relationship with God. Ephesians chapter 
chapter 2 tells us also our relationship with one another. And so as we sin and as we err, Jesus is not just our example and what it means to draw us back together, but he fixes the problem for us. As we sin against one another, we can offer each other forgiveness because if you are a believer in Jesus, you have been forgiven in Christ. All of the sins that you have ever done that should have severed you from God, they've been placed onto Jesus and you are now perfect in his sight. You are reconciled forever. And so that same thing is true then of each other, that all the sins that should sever us, we can actually now be united in these beautiful ways. And so church, I pray that we will be a church that fights for this. It's not easy, right? Relationships are hard. They're messy. They're dirty work. But man, they're rich. Man, they're rewarding. It is like the oil coming off the beard of Aaron and like the dew of Hermon. It's like salvation itself, life forevermore. Blessing is found here. And so if we are to be a fully alive people, we got to fight for these relationships. we got to reject those lies and do what it takes. So maybe that means you, I don't know, staying after church today instead of just skipping out of here right away. Like maybe you talk to two or three people. Maybe you help move a speaker. And as you move a speaker, you're like, what's your name? <laughs> right? And that begins to start this relationship. Right? Maybe you dive into community groups. Maybe you go to the men's and women's retreat. And you take a whole weekend out just to get to know other ladies, other guys around you. Man, it's not going to be beautiful. It's not going to be deep at first. But as God keeps working in it and as we love each other, as we sacrifice, as we even bear each other's pain, as we even bear the sin that we project to one another, we see the fullness of Christ there. And we begin to become more like him. And so I pray that we will be a people that fight for that. And man, friends, maybe you're wrestling with Jesus. Maybe you don't know who he is. Maybe you came to Easter and, and you were compelled by the truth of the gospel. You want to hear more. I want to tell you this is one of the benefits of the gospel. One of the benefits of the gospel is that you are not just reconciled in relationship with God, but you are reconciled in relationship with one another. And as you experience that, you become alive in ways that are unimaginable. I pray that would always be true for us in this body that we would be a relationally filthy rich church. Amen? Hey, I love you guys. Let's pray.